Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 6. While we're doing that, I just have to say I love that hymn. Uh, You know, I hear a a song or hymn, and I think, that's one of my, that's my favorite. Then I hear the next one, I go, that's my favorite. But I want you to know, the last one we just sang, May the Mind of Christ My Savior, really is my favorite. I love that hymn. Uh, And what a great prayer. Well, we've been looking at the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, and um, we come to a very well-known passage that I think is just really huge. It's such a great passage for us to to look at. So many important lessons and symbolism that we just don't want to miss here. Up to this point, Jesus has been healing and casting out demons, but what's special about this miracle is that he creates something out of nothing. Think about what it would be like to be in the presence of someone who can create something out of nothing. As we look back over, I'll just make it personal, as you look back over the last few years in your life, I think all of us could say that there are situations that we've been in that seem impossible from a human point of view. They just seem like uh, whatever the situation is, just hard for us to deal with it. That maybe you're even in one of those situations right now where you just think unless God comes through, this nothing's gonna happen. And from a, a human perspective, when we look at the situation itself, we say that, man, it just, it looks like there's nothing that can be done from my perspective. And from when we look at it, it seems humanly impossible. It, it seems hopeless. We can't fix what we're going through. We can't even tolerate it sometimes. And maybe it's happened to you because you were a victim of something that else, some bad decision that someone around you made, or maybe it, it, it happened because of a bad decision you made. Uh, maybe it was just circumstances. But if I could sum up this account that we're looking at this morning with a couple of verses, you know, the Bible is its own best commentary. And so I think these next two verses that you have on your outline, the first two on your outline, are a great summary of what we're looking at. From Jeremiah, O sovereign Lord, You made the heavens and the earth by your strong hand and powerful arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And then from Luke 18, what is impossible for people is possible with God. If if you don't remember anything else this morning, remember that. That if a situation looks impossible, It's not impossible for God. Every morning when we wake up, um, we we think and we make decisions that are either based on two ways of, one of two ways of thinking, a human way of thinking or a divine way of thinking. And this includes our expectations. It includes the assumptions that we make about life. And the human viewpoint dominates the world we live in. So it's really easy for us to default to that and the fact that we're human. 
the divine viewpoint is the exact opposite. To live with a divine perspective means that we interpret every circumstance as God's opportunity to accomplish his agenda in our lives. This miracle was a pivotal event in the disciples' education. Remember that uh, we are like the disciples. This is something God wants to teach us. Jesus wanted this incident to teach the disciples something would, that would impact their understanding for the rest of their lives. And he wants us to learn the same lessons. So at the top of your outline, you've got this. Apart from Jesus' resurrection, this is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. So this is an important one. Ideally, a time of rest follows a time of ministry. It's good to reach out to others, but we also have to make, it, make sure that we're physically rested and spiritually filled as we serve. As we minister to others, we start with what we have and we trust God to multiply what we offer to him. Like in each of Jesus' miracles, in the feeding of the 5,000, we see demonstrated Jesus' love and care, as well as his control over creation. And it shows that God will always make a way, even in an impossible situation. So let's read our passage, Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the town and got from all the towns and got there ahead of them when jesus landed and saw a crowd he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and so he began teaching them many things by this time it was late in the day so his disciples came to him and said lord this is a remote place it's already very late Send the people away so they can go and to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are, are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces and bread and fish. 
the number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. This is God's word. Well, one thing that will be helpful for us to keep in mind as we uh, dive into this passage is that where they were in Galilee, the area around the Sea of Galilee, is where a lot of the zealots came from. The zealots were those who stood for the violent overthrow of the Roman rule that was going on in Palestine and Israel at the time. This was a pretty lightly populated area. It was rural. And it seems like everyone turns out to see Jesus and listen to what he has to say. They wanted badly to overthrow Rome. They hated the Roman rule. And they were ready for a revolution. And Jesus gives them a revolution, just not the kind of revolution they were thinking of initially. When it says that there were 5,000 men in verse 44, it, it probably means that those were heads of family. Almost every commentator said it's really likely and more than likely that there were probably 10 to 12,000 there easily, maybe more. Uh, the men were looking for a military leader and Jesus shows up. And in fact, John, in John chapter six, John comes right out and says what Mark is hinting at, they were ready to force him to be their king. That's what they were after. Remember that right before this, we saw the murder of John the Baptist and how Roman rule was uh, just an awful thing to live under. And the people were after a revolutionary king and they wanted Jesus to be that king. And the first lesson that we get here is Jesus coming apart with his disciples. So we'll just kind of go in the order of the passage. And the first number one on your outline is a, a time to rest and recuperate is biblical and it's important. It's almost like Jesus took the disciples on a retreat and he said, you guys need some time to rest and to recover and get ready for more ministry because that's what they were doing. And they were learning that when you're with Jesus, who is so popular, it's not necessarily easy to get away and be alone with him. Look at verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. They were reporting to Jesus, and, and so Jesus is mentoring his men. He's discipling the disciples. He, he taught them. He sent them out. He has them come back. And then he evaluates with them what went right and what went wrong. That's a good thing to do. That's, that's the way to mentor. That's, you can't improve on what Jesus did. Back in verse 7, if you look back in, in, at chapter 6 and verse 7, Jesus gave the disciples the authority to minister in his name. And they worked hard. And there were blessings and the joys of ministry. And those were evident, but the... And so the principle is, is this, and you've got it on your outline. When you see God use you, rejoice. Thank God that he uses you. We're just instruments for him to accomplish his work. And when he uses us, we should rejoice in that. And talk about a busy season of ministry. Look at verse 31. So many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. 
You know, that doesn't happen very often. You know, we say, well, it's a little bit more convenient now than it was then. But if we're hungry, we'll say, hey, let's go grab something to eat. They couldn't do that. And so the principle was that God made us to work for six days and to rest for a day. And we need rest. And Jesus knew they needed some downtime. He knew that they needed some, some, a chance to come apart, a, a, a break from the action. And the greater the demands, the greater the need is to make time alone to be with the Lord. Because in essence, we can each have a Sabbath rest every day when we spend time alone with God. That's a mini Sabbath. That's a mini coming apart from everything else that's going on and just focusing on our relationship with Jesus to rest our bodies and to rest our souls. And it's important to recognize for all of us that there are seasons of life that we go through. There are times when we're really busy. There are times when we need to pull back a bit. And there are times that we are free to be more involved in ministry. Maybe we could say that there are some people that, that rust out for the Lord because they're lazy in ministry. And there are others that burn out because they never take a break. I like what Vance Havner said. He said, if we don't come apart, we will come apart. The principle is this, it's on your outline. Make sure you take a Sabbath rest, a weekly Sabbath rest. What we're doing today to get together, to rest, to focus on God's word, to be with each other in relationship as a body. And there is, of course, a time to work. But being a workaholic is not spiritual. In fact, it can be sinful. It's possible to even make ministry an idol. We need to rest. And rest means time of both solitude and fellowship. And even when we're trying to rest, like was the situation here, we need to be prepared for ministry because sometimes opportunities present themselves that we feel led to take advantage of, and we need to. The second lesson that Jesus taught the disciples, and we're not to miss either, is that we're called to be kind-hearted and compassionate. You know, this was a unique word, uh, the, the tender-hearted, that's used of Jesus only in Scripture. Um, Jesus isn't frustrated by the situation. He's not annoyed with all the people. He cares about them deeply. And he wants to communicate that care and that love to the disciples. Dale Moody tells about how he came to faith. And he, had, uh, <clears throat> he was in Boston. He had visited a Sunday school class that he was starting to attend. At the time, he worked in a, a shoe shop. <clears throat> and the Sunday school teacher showed up at his shop and took him in the back and shared the gospel with him. And D.L. Moody was struck by that, and his, his response was this. This Sunday school teacher talked to me about Christ and my soul. He said he didn't even remember thinking ever, he ever had a soul until this man talked to him about it. And then he said, Moody said, I don't remember exactly what he said, but I can, still I can still feel 
the power of his hand on my shoulder. That Sunday school teacher was thoughtful. He was kind. He was sensitive. That's what it means to be tender-hearted. That's what God calls us to do. Paul says it in Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven us. I know that if, if I were one of the disciples going across to the lake and seeing the people, I would say, Jesus, keep going. We need to keep rowing and go down further and get away from these people. But Jesus had something else in mind. When he saw it, he saw them, these people as like as scattered sheep. You know, Kathy and I, when we lived in France, would drive over to see her sister, who at the time lived in England. And uh, it, it was not every time that we encountered this, but if we ever took a back road, we would always see sheep over southern England, everywhere. Uh, and it, sometimes he'd be on the road and you'd, you'd go, well, where's the shepherd? He's got to be around here somewhere. In Israel, encountered the same thing, sheep everywhere, or at least in certain parts of the, of the country. And when they're there, you think they're always with a shepherd. But these people were like sheep without a shepherd. And so what does Jesus do? He pulls up and he starts teaching them many things. And we need to remember how often in scripture it talks about Jesus as the shepherd and we as his sheep. You've got them on your outline. Jesus is the rejoicing shepherd of Luke 15. Jesus is the good shepherd of John 10 who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the chief shepherd of 1 Peter 5 who honors his servants. Jesus is the great shepherd of Hebrews 13 and he is the shepherd, of the, the shepherd lamb of Revelation 7 who guides us to springs of living water. The principle that we should not miss here, you've got it on your outline, is that people have spiritual needs that we should be aware of and speak to and not be afraid to speak to these needs. It's like D.L. Moody, he didn't even know he had a need, but we can, we can pray that, that we can have the right questions to be able to ask somebody and open up and talk about spiritual things with them. We listen, we ask the Holy Spirit to direct us as to what questions to ask, as, as to what we can say, and the Holy Spirit will give us the words to say. It seems like the men pull ashore reluctantly, and look at verse 34, when Jesus landed... I love this passage. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began teaching them many things. And the word compassion is the unique word about Jesus there. And Jesus knew what they were after. They wanted a revolutionary leader and they wanted Jesus to be that revolutionary leader. But then look what he does. He begins to preach the gospel. They want him to be another Joshua. They want him to be another Moses. But he says, no, I'm going to preach the gospel to you. And as Jesus ministers to their spiritual needs, he ministers to their physical needs when, they, when that becomes an issue as well. Because they were tired. The disciples were tired. The Lord would... He would do things to, to give them something to eat. And the disciples were like, Lord, maybe now's the time to kind of wrap things up so we can finish and send them off to get something to eat. Look at verse 35. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. 
the disciples knew that these people must be hungry because they were hungry. And to be fair, their suggestion isn't completely unreasonable. I would <clears throat> see myself saying something like that. Jesus, it's time for us to take a break. Send them away so we can eat. They need to go eat. Jesus could use a break. They knew that. The disciples needed a break. They'd been traveling. They'd been preaching. They'd been healing. They'd been casting out demons. They needed rest and food as well. They could pick up the teaching later, but Jesus had other plans. Verse 37. You give them something to eat, and the emphasis is definitely on you. And according to John in John 6, Jesus said this was to test them because he already knew what he was going to do. So let me ask you, how are you doing in the being compassionate department with other people? How about when you drive your car? That one sometimes is a little tougher. We can be a little bit more anonymous. Uh, I would say don't do what I did when I was a brand new Christian. I was, I was 15 years old. You could have your driver's license when you're 15 in Wichita, Kansas. <clears throat> and I had a, 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 a bumper sticker that said on the back, honk if you love Jesus or something like that. And it was magnetic. And I knew if I, if I was in a hurry, I didn't want to be a bad witness. I'd just go take it off my car. <laughs> so don't do that. The third lesson that the disciples were taught by Jesus that we're not to miss either is that we're to do whatever we can, this is number three, to meet people's spiritual and physical needs. Feeding so many people seemed overwhelming from a human point of view. And the disciples respond in verse 37. And look at, they point out the problems. That would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Jesus' compassion is what moves him to meet their greatest need, which is a spiritual need. But then he says, hey, they have a physical need as well, so we're going to meet that too. And the principle here, and you've got it on your outline, is that people have physical needs that we should meet if we have an opportunity to do so. You know, we're not responsible for how people that we give money to maybe on the street, how they spend it. We're responsible to be obedient to God to help in whatever way we can. Matthew 25, in that passage you've got listed on your outline, Jesus tells us to feed the hungry and give water to the thirsty and give rest to the stranger and clothe the naked and care for the sick, and visit the prisoners. That's what Jesus tells us to do. And then what does he say at the end of that? If you've done it to one of the least of these, you've done it to me. Wow. We minister to the whole person, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus sends the men on a scavenger hunt for food. Look at verse 38. How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. 
Yes, there were human limitations. But Jesus was just waiting for one of them to say, this is nothing for you, Lord. You can do this. You can feed them all. You can make something out of nothing. That would be from a divine perspective. That they were learning, but they didn't have it yet. Not here. The disciples seemed to be full of unbelief. But they obeyed Jesus. And they participate in one of the Lord's greatest miracles. It's like the disciples are saying, you're asking us to do the impossible. And as if, as if, it's as if Jesus says right back to them, exactly. And I'm going to help you do it. And once you see that it's impossible, Jesus, like he says, then trust me. And then you're in the best position ever for me to use you. And the principle, you've got this on your outline, is even in their unbelief, the disciples did what they could. The disciples did what they could. After having seated him in a way that would best serve them in 50s and 100s, Jesus did what only God the Son could do. He thanked the Father for his provision and he broke the loaves and the fishes into pieces and enough pieces to fill everyone, to satisfy everyone. Jesus uses us to do his work in the world. We are his hands, we are his feet, we are his voice. It's what we sang about, may the mind of Christ my savior live in me from day to day. May, it, may, may I be your hands and your feet. May I think with a heavenly perspective about everything I think about in my life, my work, my family, my friends, my hobbies, everything. If we want our friends to tell our friends and our family about the Lord and someone will say, oh, you don't know my friends and family. They are so far from God. They are impossible. And what does Jesus say? Exactly. Now you trust me. You keep praying. And you share. That's your responsibility. You're not in, in charge of how someone else responds to the gospel. You're just in charge to share the good news with them. That's what our responsibility is. Yes, it will take a miracle. And that's exactly what God specializes in doing. And we may feel inadequate. And that, again, is the best position for us to be in, to feel inadequate. That's when God can work through us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 says, not that we are adequate in ourselves so as to consider anything as having come from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. So here's what one commentator said about that verse. Listen to this. It is not God's intention that we should be in ourselves inadequate, that we should be in ourselves adequate to our tasks. Rather, he wants that we should be inadequate. If we only accept the tasks which we think are adapted to our powers, we are not responding to the call of God. The church is always in crisis. And always will be. There will be difficulties. There will be limitations. There will be insoluble problems. A lack of people and money. A menacing outlook. 
endless misunderstandings and misrepresentations. And then the commentator ends with this. We are not only to do our work despite these things, they are precisely the conditions requisite for the doing of it. How encouraging is that for all of us? Yes, we are inadequate, but God is adequate. God in us is adequate. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's like he's saying, Paul's saying, I'm self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency who lives in me. Who knows, how, who knows how long it took him to distribute all the bread and the fish? But everyone had enough to eat. And Jesus' object lesson here couldn't have been lost on the disciples. His disciples, years after Jesus' ascension, had to remember this and how, how this challenged them with the impossible and gave them hope and the means to be able to accomplish whatever God wanted them to do. Wow. What a great lesson for us to remember as well and not forget. God will always multiply our sacrifices to meet the need and accomplish his plans. As we do the same thing the disciples did in the midst of our unbelief, we still believe. Yeah, they, I think they were full of unbelief, but they obeyed Jesus and distributed the food. And what did God do? The only miracle that's in all four of the Gospels. It's an important miracle. You'll see what God does when we give him what we have to use, however meager it might be. And where we see not enough, Jesus sees an abundance. God loves to demonstrate his power and sufficiency in our lives all the time. And so you have this on the outline. God will allow problems to invade our lives that are beyond what we can handle because he wants us to look to him. He wants us to look to him. I love the way Warren Wiersbe put it. He said it like this. Jesus looked at the situation not as a problem, but as an opportunity to trust the Father and glorify his name. And the bread was a symbol of life in New Testament times. You know, we go and we don't want bread. We can ask for a wrap or we can ask for a lettuce wrap or whatever. We don't have to have bread. That, that, was, that was all they had. That represented life to them. Think of Matthew 4.4 when Jesus said, Man, he was speaking, having this dialogue with Satan when Satan was tempting him. And he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so our bread is what we're doing right now. We're chewing on the bread of the word together. And in John chapter six, Jesus says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down out of heaven so that anyone may eat from it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. That's what Jesus says. In other words, you have a hunger that physical bread can't fill. And that hunger isn't filled by the bread, it's filled by the bread of life. 
And if it's not filled by the bread of life, then, then we will be forever separated from God for all eternity. But the way to be with God is to eat of the bread. You know, I, I ran across a, a quote from Jean-Paul Sartre, the atheist, the French existential philosopher who was an atheist. And he said this, and his, maybe it was a translation from French, but he uses a double negative. We'll excuse him for that. But here's what he says. That God does not exist, I cannot deny. That my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. So here, listen to that. Here's an atheist, and what he's saying is, I don't believe in God, but I'm hungry for what I think only God could give me. Jesus is the only one who has a cure for the emptiness that we ever feel. Jesus doesn't do this or any other miracle just to entertain us, just to say, oh wow, look what I did. It, and this is on your outline. The, the point of his miracles is to show us his redemption, the power of his redemption. Jesus says that if we eat the bread that is him, we will live forever. That's the promise. That's our hope. That's exactly what we need to face anything that's in front of us. Anything. Jesus is saying, I'm not a new Moses. I'm the ultimate Moses who comes to liberate you, not just from political oppression. That's secondary but from sin and from death itself. Boy, that's what we need liberating from. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it with the cross. And I talked to Gwen Soderberg yesterday and I said, I know this is a hard time for you. And, uh, and um, she said, I'm not sorry. I want Jerry to be with Jesus. I want his suffering to be over and him to be with the Lord. Folks, they've been married like 70 years. But that's the hope we have in Christ. Jesus died on the cross. He was broken, first as our substitute, and most importantly, but also as, an our, as our example. As our substitute, think of Jesus as the bread. If the bread stays whole, we can't eat it, we'll starve. We have to bite into it, we ha it has to be broken. And that's what happened to Jesus on the cross. Jesus says, I am the bread. In other words, Jesus is saying, I went to the cross to take the punishment you deserved and I was broken so that you could be whole. And what fills our emptiness inside is that we know that the Father accepts us because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And we can know that he loves us unconditionally. And he loves us forever. And that frees us from fear. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. And then as our example, we see Jesus do the exact opposite of the world. Think about this with me. The world is all about taking advantage of other people. It's about elbowing them out of the way so I can get ahead. It's all about getting more and more power. 
But what did Jesus do on the cross? He gave up power. He could have called down 10,000 angels to save him off the cross. He gave up that power. Religion is what makes us self-sufficient. It makes us self-righteous. It makes us individualistic. It is the gospel that changes us from the inside out. It turns everything around and makes us be about other people and serving the people around us. You know, there are so many examples about this. We could talk about work. We could talk about spare time, our free time. We could talk about money. I want to talk about relationships and what giving up power and following the example of Jesus on the cross means for relationships. The world holds grudges. Jesus says, we have to forgive everybody who wrongs us. It's not an option for a Christian. We have to forgive them. So different from the world. It's like you take a principle of the world and you reverse it and you have a principle of God. If you see that somebody has something against you or if you have something against someone else, we never get off the hook. Either way, it's always our responsibility to go to them and make it right. And how often do we go? We go again and again and again until we get it right. That's what the church is. We don't have the option of of giving up. We have to forgive. We have to reconcile. You can never allow a root of bitterness to grow in your life. But what it means is being vulnerable. We don't like that. But it's giving up power. It's following Jesus' example on the cross. And you know, we we want this church here, our local church at Claremont Emanuel, to be great in the kingdom of God, to do great things to serve the kingdom of God and to grow the kingdom of God. And every, we want, you know, we talk about, we want everyone to be in a small group. You have to be. As, As we get bigger, we need to get smaller at the same time and be able to share with people and pray with them and and have them know us and we know them and we know their kids and and they pray for our kids. And in the same way, we want everyone to be involved in a ministry because we need to give of ourselves. We we want to be like a sponge. And what happens if a sponge sits there and doesn't get squeezed out? It, It starts to smell. And we don't want to start to smell. We want to get, we want to fill ourselves up and then squeeze ourselves out on other people. And then get filled again and squeeze ourselves out again. We want to be involved in ministry. We have so many opportunities for ministry here. And you, I could name them forever. Living Waters Ministry. We've got uh, the ministry of the, the folks up here that are singing and the guys in the sound booth. And we've got uh, working with our children. And you know, as we move back inside, we're going to need more help with our children. And if you think I'm not gifted in that area, I know I, I, I could probably argue that no one down there serving feels gifted in that area. They'd love to be doing something else, but they're available to do what what needs to be done. And so we look for opportunities for ministry. We use our spiritual gifts every time we can, and we make ourselves available. And we defer to each other. We care for each other. 
And it's different from the world because the world is all about gaining power. And we're not. To follow Jesus' example, we're about losing power. So if there's anyone here that would say, you know, I don't think that I've ever really embraced Jesus like you're talking about embracing Jesus. Just remember what Jesus said. What he didn't say, what he did not say is I'm the teacher who will show you how to save yourselves. He didn't say that. He said, I lived a perfect life in your place and I died the death that you deserve to die because of your sin. And to really embrace Jesus is not just to try to be like him. No, it's to see what he's done and ask God to accept us because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That will change you. That will change you on the inside. And remember, following Jesus is hard. And we're inadequate, but God will make us adequate. That's why he gives us his Holy Spirit to fill us. And Henrietta Mears said the Christian life is impossible to live. But that's why God has given us his Holy Spirit to live in us. And so if you're in an impossible situation right now, and this is a perfect passage for you, for us, to remind us that we don't have to be plagued by the same earthbound perspective and viewpoint that the disciples first had. And so you have this question on your outline. What's something going on in your life right now that seems as impossible to you as trying to feed 15,000 people with a handful of bread and a few fish? And you absolutely don't know how to overcome it. You don't know how to address the issue. You don't know how to solve the problem that's in front of you. It even seems to throw you off balance so that you can't even sleep well at night and you can't concentrate. And so you put yourselves in the place of the disciples who had this earthbound viewpoint that Jesus was helping them to overcome. And Jesus saw the hunger of the however many were there, the thousands that were there in a completely different way than the 12 saw it. Where they saw an impossible situation, Jesus saw an incredible opportunity to point to his heavenly father and bring glory to him. So whether your problem is with work or a relationship or financial or medical or whatever it is, from our limited perspectives, we see it one way, God sees opportunity for him to be glorified. And that's when we exercise our faith and we trust him. So here's one last reminder that we started with, with God, nothing is impossible. So the last blank to fill in there, you put your bread and your fish in his hands, you trust him, and just live a life of obedience to him. Think about it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are here again to remember you, what you've done for us. Will you please help us correct our earthbound perspective and make it your perspective? Help us to see, Lord, that to be like you means losing power, not getting power. And as we reach out and serve others, 
Will you help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand? Will you melt our hearts as we feed on you and your word throughout this week? And we pray that in whatever situation each of us is going through right now that you would help us, Father, by your Holy Spirit to see it from your perspective. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So may God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together spirit, soul, and body and keep you fit for the coming of the master Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy some fellowship together.